0: What is the biggest tree you've ever seen? What's the biggest tree? The family tree. Sequoia. Is that the redwood, right? Yeah. Family, tree. <laughs> family tree. Nice. Did you say that? <laughs> nice. I'm out of the box. Yeah. Your time. So that, so that tree is going to be really, really big, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, willow tree's big. Big tree. Yeah. The biggest one I think I've seen, and I've, I've traveled quite a bit, but the biggest one I think I've seen is redwood. Uh, I went to, um, where is it, San Francisco, is that where they have the Redwood Forest? What's it called? Squire. Yeah, Sequoia National, yeah, National Park, yeah, what, yeah, Muir, Muir Woods, that is it, yeah. If you've never seen, a, I mean, I've seen them in pictures, but it's like the Grand Canyon, if you've never seen it in real life, it'll take your breath away. These things are humongous. Um, I started looking online because I know they used to log these trees. They're, they can't anymore because they're endangered species, but they used to log these trees. And so I found you some pictures of what it looks like. Uh, we're going to be talking about the divine lumberjack. Let's move beyond that because I want to show you these pictures. That is a, that is a picture of, uh, of, of these guys sawn. Can you imagine sawing that thing by hand? I think that was taken in 18, I think the date is like 1865 or something like that. Show them the next one. This one, that's a big tree, isn't it? How long do you think it would take to cut that thing down? And the guys that are cutting it down aren't like Arnold Schwarzenegger. There's, there's like these little guys, you know, they're just away at the tree, but I wouldn't want to meet them in a dark alley. These guys, uh, these guys are strong guys. I, I look at these, these awesome trees and I think to myself, uh, when you look at these trees and you look up and you see the majesty of them, you think how incredibly immense how incredibly formidable this tree is. I mean, when that sucker falls, it's gonna make a big noise, whether it's alone in the forest or not. There's going to be a huge fall. In Daniel chapter four, where we're at today, we come across another dream that Nebuchadnezzar has about a tree. And this tree is formidable, it's huge. It's so big that nations, uh, uh, that, that people around from all different nations gather under it to enjoy its shade. People eat from the fruit of it, birds land in it, they enjoy the, 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 the nesting that they can do in this tree. This one massive tree feeds and provides for all the nations. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and this dream about this tree is given to Nebuchadnezzar for one reason. It represents this obstacle he has between him and the Lord. God has already worked in his life in several different ways as we've already studied. He's already already reached out to Nebuchadnezzar, trying to drag him away and into his grace. But Nebuchadnezzar has constantly had this proud, hard heart. And the final confrontation Nebuchadnezzar has with God before we hear of him no more in the book of Daniel, the final confrontation he has is this one dream about this one massive tree. So take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Daniel chapter 4, and we're going to see a clash of titans in this passage of Scripture that is going to make it easy to understand why God would choose a tree to compare to Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And in this chapter, God is going to cut Nebuchadnezzar's pride down to size. First of all, let's look at the great tree. Uh, in chapter 4 and starting in verse 4, the Bible reads like this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house. See if you can find the flaws in these statements, all right? Or the... the um, The quicksand. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me very afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and dreams, uh, fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Now, this is another warning that God is going to give Nebuchadnezzar of the future. He's done this before in a dream. You remember that? None of his wise men, none of his Chaldees, none of the guys, none of the magicians, sorcerers, nobody, could tell him the dream. They all could guess at what the meaning was, but he wanted somebody that could tell him the dream. Only Daniel, the the servant of the Most High God, was able to tell him the dream and tell him the interpretation. Here, we have a bookend in Nebuchadnezzar's life, another dream. God is still pursuing Nebuchadnezzar, but he can't get through, and so he gives him this one more dream that made him very afraid. Now, what is the quicksand in this passage of scripture? What are are the dangers that Nebuchadnezzar might have faced that you read right in the first sentence? I was at ease and I was prospering in my palace. The reason why God couldn't get through to Nebuchadnezzar was because it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. Jesus said that, brilliant. Why? Because rich people or people who have ease or people who are prospering constantly, who have need of nothing, those folks don't need God. They don't see their deeper depravity that can only be fixed by God. They suppress those thoughts. They lay them over with riches or they lay them over with prosperity and they pretend that they don't exist And so the way that God gets through to people who have lives of ease or feel like they don't need anything, but everyone needs the Lord. The way that God gets true to them is that he gives them a major calamity or a major disaster or a major challenge in their lives. In fact, probably if you think about it, the the times that God has spoken to you and to me in my life and in yours probably came through a time of distress or a time of, forget the D, a time of stress. Those are the times that God really speaks volume, in volumes that we can fully comprehend. And so God takes Nebuchadnezzar through a time of distress. Here's what happens in verse six. Nebuchadnezzar can't sleep. He's, he's got this, this dream in his brain again. Again, remember, this is the only way that Nebuchadnezzar thinks that his God speak to him is through these dreams. So he has this dream, he can't figure it out. So he's distressed. Verse six, I made a decree, Nebuchadnezzar says, that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me. And they make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in. They all show up again and told him, and I told them the dream, but they could not tell me its interpretation. So he calls all these people who have failed at this before, and he asks them to come in and do it again. Why do you think he did that? Is that kind of an odd thing? I mean, they... They've already proven they can't do it. But this is who he starts with. I think because this is what he's used to. They can't figure out the interpretation, so what is the go-to for Nebuchadnezzar? He calls in one guy. Who's the one guy? Daniel. Daniel. At last, I like that, verse eight, (laughs) verse six. At last, Daniel came in before me. He whose name was Belteshazzar, after the name of my God. And in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? And I told him the dream saying, "O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know the spirit of the holy gods, plural, is in you, and that there's no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of the dream that I saw and their interpretation. Now, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that Daniel is unique in some way from all these other workers and all these, how the gods work with these other workers. But Nebuchadnezzar is not ready yet to see God as God alone. He's still, his culture has still molded him to believe that there are many gods and he has sold himself out to that proposition. Verse 10, the visions of my head as I lay in the bed were these, Nebuchadnezzar says, I saw and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. Its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to the heaven. It was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit was abundant and in it, it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all of the greatness of Babylon. Babylon had grown to be one of the greatest kingdoms the earth had ever known. As a matter of fact, you can go to museums today and still see artifacts from Babylon. It was so huge and so great. One of the seven wonders of the world was the garden that Nebuchadnezzar built in Babylon. Babylon was an extraordinary place. We often talk about Rome. Babylon was the Rome of the then known age. But then in his dream, this great tree, Babylon, something terrible happens to the tree. And so if you are a uh, ecologist, Uh, If you like to hug trees on your spare time, this is going to hurt you as I read this. So buckle in, here we go. Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in the bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven and proclaimed aloud and said this, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit and let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches." Another thing about Babylon, you wanna know what it is? In Babylon, they actually had a God who protected the trees. This God was called the Watcher. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that the Watcher, this is actually uh, uh, one of the Babylonian walls. This was encrypted on on one of the walls. This is a picture of the guards, uh, the gods, the Watchers, the holy ones, who watch over this special tree. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that these holy ones, these watchers, declare that the tree should be cut down, no longer protected, but stripped and cut down. Verse 15. So to Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, this would have been a devastating dream. He knew what the watchers were. He understood what the tree was and how the tree meant this powerful thing. He just didn't get the interpretation but he was really bothered. And I would think most of all, because the watchers say this one's coming down and they were supposed to be protecting the tree. Verse 15, the watchers say, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. Amid the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. What is a stump good for? If you cut a tree down, what is a stump good for? I could only think of actually one, maybe two things. It's good for sitting on, that's what I thought of. And if I had a green thumb, maybe I'd put a little flower flower pot out there, but that's about it. You got a stump of a tree more than anything else, it's a pain. Because you still got the roots under the ground and you got this thing sticking up out of the ground, it's a stump good for nothing. This is Nebuchadnezzar sentenced by God. And the sentence is being declared by the watchers. Look in verse 17. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision is by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Nebuchadnezzar is about to find out what this dream means. Now, I think he's got a little, a little idea in his head of what this dream is going to be. It's not obviously a good thing. But before the Bible tells us how Nebuchadnezzar feels about the dream, before we get an interpretation of the dream, we are given a window into Daniel's heart. This cannot be overlooked. Look at how Daniel feels about this interpretation. Verse 19, Then Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar, was what? Was dismayed for a while. His thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the king, the dream, nor the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who, interesting, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. What do you get out of this passage? Do you get the idea that Daniel might like Nebuchadnezzar? That's what I get. I get the idea that Daniel has a heart for for Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar was a real jerk, but Daniel likes him. The thoughts of this dream that he has to interpret alarmed him and he ends this all by saying to Nebuchadnezzar, may the interpretation be for your enemies and not for you because I know what this dream means and it's really bad And I'm hoping it's for those who hate you and not for you. I think that shows us a great heart into the window of somebody who is really believing that where he is, is where God wants him to be. He is a slave in Babylon, but yet he has a heart for the person that he is serving. For us, that's a hard crossover to make, isn't it? It is hard for us to love those we have to serve. For Daniel, apparently, it's a part of his character. So here we go. Verse 22. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. This tree is you, brother. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominions to the end of the earth. I wonder how Nebuchadnezzar responded at that point. He was probably going, yes, that's who I am. Yes, the tree is me. He was probably feeling pretty good, but he knows Bad things happen to the tree. And so here we go, 24. Daniel says, this, in the, this is the interpretation, O king, the decree of the most high, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men. Now get this, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You will be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time shall pass over you, that's seven years till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. How would you like to know the day you're gonna die? How would you like to know the day you're going to lose your mind? I wonder if that would change the way you live until that day. Nebuchadnezzar did not know the day he was going to lose his mind, but he knows eventually God is going to take the mind that he has given Nebuchadnezzar back. And Nebuchadnezzar would lose his mind. He would go insane for seven years. And not just go insane, but he would think he was an animal. That's a horrible dream, right? Daniel knows this and he is reluctant to tell the king. And so I think Daniel loved Nebuchadnezzar so much, he he actually gives him one more chance. This verse is incredible. It's the next verse, verse 27. Therefore, my Lord King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, please repent so this doesn't have to happen. The tree that you have built is immense. It's great, but it is built on your pride. Crush your pride before the Lord. Recognize that God is king of all. Follow him or bad things are about to happen. I love Daniel because he has such a heart for this bad king, you know, this evil Nebuchadnezzar this proud. I don't know about you. Do you have proud people in your life? Do you have people that you just don't like a whole lot? Do you have people that you have to serve that you just don't like a whole lot? You think they make dumb decisions? Well, Nebuchadnezzar made dumb decisions on a regular basis, but everybody had to do it because he's the king. Daniel loves this man. To me, that says we should be like Christ, right? Because Daniel was. I think it would be hard to love somebody as they're sinning against you, and yet that is exactly what Jesus does for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be a propitiation, substitute for our sins. And so we come face to face with not the great tree, but the greater lumberjack. And the greater lumberjack is, as you guessed it, the Lord. 12 months pass. Days and months change. But Nebuchadnezzar remains the same, still as proud as he's always been. Now, I think that he probably changed for a couple of days. I think that he probably thought to himself, I don't want to lose my mind. I can trust Daniel. I know he's got a, he's got a heart for me, so I know I can trust him. So maybe I'll give it, a, and I think like a diet that lasts for a little while or like a workout regime that lasts for a month. He tries it for a while, but it just fades off. And in 12 months, we see the old Nebuchadnezzar And guess what he's doing? The great tree. Verse 28. At the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the palace, the royal palace in Babylon. And the king answered and said, I don't know who he's answering to, he's talking out loud, talking to himself. Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of God? my majesty. Judgment comes to the proud. God knew Nebuchadnezzar's heart better than he knew it himself. And no matter how long he tried to fix it himself, he needed God to insert his power so that he could overcome this pride and be crushed before God because he didn't do it. He fell back into the old game. I think it's very hard to detox a heart of pride. Going through the detoxifying process of somebody that's very proud to get them to be humble, I think is a very difficult process. I think God does it very well. I think God does it very gently. Sometimes when we go through a period of ease, we translate it as, well, God's not doing much in my life right now. He must be pretty satisfied with me. And so we let loose a little more. We walk a little closer to the edge. We invite sin into our lives more than we know we should but God plays the long game. And you may think to yourself, well, Craig, how can all these proud people be walking around? How, how come God, God doesn't get a hold of their, their lives? You never know what's happening in the background of somebody's heart. God is always at work in the back of somebody's heart, just like He was in yours. When you came to know the Lord, He was at work a long time before that to draw you to Himself, give you the right people to talk to, give you the right church to go to, give you the Bible in your hands. However, He did it to get to your heart, He worked through the long game. And if you know somebody who's proud or obnoxious or you think to yourself, God will never get, like Kim Jong-un, that, that sinful, despicable human being, I believe that God can even get through to him. Amen. But the pride has to come down first, and that is the most difficult thing to break. Second Peter 3, 9, God plays a long game. We may think that he's not doing anything, but here's what he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. God is always at work. But the reason why he's slow to us is because he is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know what that means? That means that we need to be as patient as God because we need to allow him to work at his time in those hearts and be faithful witnesses in the process, just like Daniel. If I could presume to play Daniel's role for a moment, I wanna just encourage you that if you see somebody that is actively not living for the Lord, but you see God actively working in their lives to try and scream to them, you gotta change this thing in your life. And you go to them, you say, you gotta change this thing in your life. You know, you try to be the word of God to them and they're not listening, don't give up. Prayer is your greatest instrument. Spend a lot of time in prayer because God is always at work, and God loves to answer prayer, and God plays always the long game. This is, I think, what Daniel would say to us. He would stand up front here today, and he would say, this is from my book, and this is the message I'm trying to get across. God is at work in every heart. Be patient. If God is at work in your heart, or if God is at work in somebody's heart that you know of and they continue to disregard God's work in their heart, unfortunately for them, there is a price to pay. You cannot ignore the grace of God for any long length of time. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 2, 4, this is one of my favorite passages, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? That word, patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That goes to every person on the planet who has not received the blessings of God in their lives. Not any person. Every person has received God's blessings in their lives. Every person has tasted and seen that God is good. The thing that makes you a believer different from those who are unbelievers is that we believers, we look at it and we go, wow, God is good. God, everything I have is from him. Everything I am is because of him. Who would I be if not for him, right? That is everything from God. It is the unbeliever that says, look what I did. Look what I have made. Look at how great I am. And that is the difference. And the verse, verse five of Romans chapter two says that if we maintain a hard heart before God, in other words, if we keep receiving the blessings and the goodness of God, and we don't give him the glory, We are storing up for ourselves wrath on the day of judgment, Romans 2, 5. So why do I do what I do? I do what I do so that hopefully you will hear and those around me will hear from me that God is always at work in their lives and they must bow the knee to him. God gets through to Nebuchadnezzar the only way he could understand. Look in verse 31. Get this, the first few words here. While the words were still in the king's mouth. <laughs> Don't you love that? Like God said, okay, that's it. we we that's, that's the end. We've, we've, this is the timetable it's up. While the words were still in the king's mouth. Is this not great? But, while the words were still in the king's, king's mouth. There fell a voice from heaven. God speaks to Nebuchadnezzar. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Remember your dream, Nebuchadnezzar? And you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time, seven years shall pass over you, and you will know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Nebuchadnezzar didn't even get to finish the song he was singing to himself. And immediately, verse 33, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and he ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Nebuchadnezzar lost it, big time. He thought he was an animal. Now he's vulnerable to his friends. He's a a humiliation to his family. (sighs) and his friends, he's vulnerable to his enemies. And the judgment is carried out. For seven years, Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind because his mind too belonged to God and God took it back. We err when we begin to believe any part of our lives are under our own power. We err when we take credit for any blessing that originated from God's hand. We err when we walk any path that elevates our own abilities above God's abilities. We err when we draw out the blueprint for our lives and put God in the back row. We err when we worship self, pleasure and pride more than we worship God. We err when we form our own words to superimpose them over God's word in our lives. And we err when we ignore the warnings of God over and over and over and over. How quickly we forget that the reason our hearts beat in our chest is because God has mercifully given us one more day. When humility gets, takes the gracious actions of God and assigns them to anything other than, than God, that's pride. Humility assigns all of the things back to God. And if you don't do that, you travel down the trip of rebellion. You wanna know what the trip of rebellion is? You can read this in Romans chapter one. I just put this in because I love it. The trip of rebellion is a process that goes through. God gives us up to uncleanliness first, that's in Romans 1. You can read this in Romans chapter 1. Uh, they, people wink at pleasure. They wink at sin instead of declaring it to be what it is. Fornication and adultery are no longer even a sign to the realm of sin. It's just part of life. Um, that's uncleanliness that we begin to accept. It's a fact of life. That leads to number two. The next step is we stretch this uncleanliness to the max and we begin to add in vile affections. Vile affections are further perversions of God's standard, of how we should live our lives. A permissive attitude towards stretching the boundaries of sex is always included. That is huge in our world today, how it's defined, how it's acted out. Multiple sexual partners, pornography, open marriages, homosexuality, all of that is a stretch of the, uh, into vile affections of how God intended for us to be in the first place. And eventually we're not happy with the second step, so we move to the third step, which is unsatisfied. We just give ourselves up to a reprobate mind. We are no longer ashamed of anything that we do. Now we look for others to recognize how they should appreciate all the things that we do. We even make laws to say how we're not wrong in what we think about how life should be lived. And the results of that behavior are completely ignored, like abortion, completely ignored. You can't even talk about it anymore. This is the natural course of depravity. Step one, God gives you over to uncleanness. Ignore God. This is the path you're eventually going to take. That will stretch to vile affections, uncleanliness, like nobody's business, and then completely unsatisfied, move to a reprobate mind and do all kinds of weird and crazy things. It's almost like the, the motto of the limbo. What's the motto of the limbo? How low can you go? But God is gracious just as much as He is just. And God puts a limit on Nebuchadnezzar's dishonor and his humiliation. God was faithful in his judgment. He took Nebuchadnezzar through this, but he said only this would last for seven years. Remember that? And at the end of seven years, God gives the mind back to Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what happened in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes up to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And now we, the reader, are meant to read this and say, well, will will God finally capture the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, or will he receive his mind back, realize what a moron he's been for the last seven years, and how he's been made fun of and living like an animal in the field, and will he get more angry at God? What is going to happen? How does a prideful heart respond when it is judged like this? Look at how he responds, verse 34. Read it for me, church. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Pride or humility? Humility. He finally learned. I'm amazed at this response because I would think that a proud heart, the first thing a proud heart would do would be to get your mind back and say, I hate you, God, for what you've done to me. You're using me like a puppet, and I don't deserve it. I wonder what would have happened to him if that had been his reaction. Instead, his reaction is complete and utter, he's broken before God, humbled. And Nebuchadnezzar not only says this, but he acknowledges God's place in his life in verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth, Nebuchadnezzar said, are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? Is that great? None can stay his hand or say, why have you done this to me? You know what a proud heart does the minutes it's judged? It's judged looks up to God and says, why have you done this to me? Do you know where that comes from? It comes from a heart that declares it deserves more from God. But a humble heart says, I have no right to say, what have you done? Instead, I should say, how do you want me to change? Two different responses. Absolute and complete surrender of a proud heart. So then God shows him outstanding grace. Look at what happens next. In verse 26, his kingdom would be confirmed for the duration of the trial, but there's no promise of what would happen after seven years of judgment. But look at verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Do you know what that means? God not only judged him, not only forgave him, not only restored him, but God blessed him further. That's amazing to me because he was such a moron. I mean, God really went to extenuating circumstances to get through to this guy. But once he humbled himself, the hardest thing for him to do, God blessed him even more. Now, I want you to to know that I believe that when I get to heaven, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be there. Now you might say to me, well, Craig, how in the world do you get that? I'm glad you asked. Nebuchadnezzar does a few things that indicate to me that he has now become a follower of Yahweh. When you witness to somebody, it's always hard for you to know their heart, right? They know their heart, but it's hard for you to know their heart, so you look for signs. And in Nebuchadnezzar, there are a couple of different signs. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar refers to God as singular king for the first time. Up to now, he said, king, uh, uh, gods or whatever, but in verse 37, look at it. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the singular what? King. King of heaven. For all his works singular are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar begins to stop talking about a pluralistic gods and starts talking about one God. I think that's a great indication that he now believes this God is the king, the great God, the only God. Number two, Nebuchadnezzar bows to God's moves in his life and doesn't blame him. I already touched on this, but let me just remind you that his response to God's judgment is the response of somebody that is humble before God, not proud. That is a good indication that you're a follower of Christ. If your response to his moving in your life is constantly, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to change? You see, when somebody comes to you and says, you're this or you're that, and they they accuse you of that, your natural response is to say, well, you're this and you're that, right? That's what comes natural to the flesh. How are you, who are you to put yourself up there? Let me just climb up there with you and, and compare myself to you. Nobody likes to be talked down to, but the response of a Christian is different. When somebody comes to us and they say, well, Craig, you need to work on this in your life. My first response should not in your life. Really? You see that in me? How do you see that in me? How can I change? What do I need to change? I need to give it validation, explore it. It May or may not be true, but my first response comes from under here, not above here. When God deals with us, it's the same situation. Our response needs to be, God, I I am your servant. I am pliable. I am flexible. Do with me as you will. This is what I think Nebuchadnezzar does, especially because his first response, the minute he has an opening of his mind back, reason. First thing he does is to praise God. Number three, Daniel begins to treat Nebuchadnezzar like a follower, a fellow follower of the Lord. I want you to notice something in verse one. This is how the whole book starts. This is going to blow you away. And I gotta tell you, I've read this like all kinds of times but I didn't get it until Michael and I sat down and I read it and I'm going, how could I have missed this all these years? Look at how verse one of chapter four starts. Who wrote this chapter in Daniel? King Nebuchadnezzar. This is Daniel's book, but King Nebuchadnezzar wrote this chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. Nebuchadnezzar wrote Daniel chapter four. Does that not blow you away? I never saw it before. I know you're probably sitting there going, Craig, I knew that a long time ago. Well... Good for you, I didn't know that. I, 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 Michael's probably over at Village of Bartlett going, I knew this and Craig was an idiot and I had to bring him out. Oh, he didn't get it the whole time. Um, hey, listen, why? Why did Nebuchadnezzar write Daniel chapter four? You know, I don't know why I think he wrote it. I think he wrote it because he was a changed man and he wanted his people to know he was a changed man. In fact, let me throw in another little tidbit that you may not know. Chapter 2, 3, and 4 of Daniel. Chapter 2, 3, and 4 deal with Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 1, and much of Daniel is written in Hebrew. Do you want to know what language Daniel 2, 3, and 4 are are written in? They're written in Chaldees. They're written in the native tongue of the king. Daniel 2, 3, and 4, the story of Nebuchadnezzar's Chase of God and his conversion is written in Nebuchadnezzar's language. And when you get to Daniel chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar finishes it off by writing it in his own hand. Isn't that cool? I think Daniel looked at Nebuchadnezzar and said, hey, listen, buddy, you've given your life to Jesus. You're a follower of Yahweh like I am. Why don't you finish off your story? Tell us how you were converted. Tell us how God chased you down. It's his testimony. Daniel 2, 3, and 4 are Nebuchadnezzar's testimony of how he came to know the Lord. I love that about this book. I wonder, if, uh, I wonder if they sat down for coffee one day and Daniel's saying, okay, I know you come to know the Lord. I'm writing this book to tell us a little bit about you know, life and how you stole us out of Jerusalem. You took us from our families. You killed my parents and all of that, but then you came to know the Lord. And, and now I'm happy that you came to know the Lord and I was writing all this down and and we're having coffee now, we're brothers. Why don't you tell them your story? And he writes it in his own language. Number four, Daniel treats, uh, Nebuchadnezzar treats Daniel like a brother now. Or, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Daniel treats Nebuchadnezzar like a brother now. He was treating him like a fellow follower of Jesus, but now he treats him like a brother. And what I mean by this is, I think verse three is cool because it is Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to be a missionary. And I think Daniel looks at Nebuchadnezzar and says, hey, listen, we follow the same God. We're brothers in Christ. You need to witness now. You need need to tell your story. And Daniel graciously gives him an avenue to reach the world for the Lord. I think Daniel is discipling Nebuchadnezzar. And this chapter, I think, proves it. I think Nebuchadnezzar wants to grow up to be just like Daniel, (laughs) which is really crazy. In fact, in verse 3, Nebuchadnezzar says, how great are his signs. Does this sound like Daniel? How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. True signs of conversion do not mean we whimper the Lord's name. It means that we worship the Lord's name. Not only that, but Nebuchadnezzar treats Daniel like a brother now. that You may have did miss it until I sat down and went through this with Michael at our sermon prep time. As we walk through the story, Nebuchadnezzar treats Daniel differently. Now, what is the first thing that Nebuchadnezzar did when he captured Daniel from Jerusalem and brought him over? He gave him a new, new name. He named him after his gods. He named him Belteshazzar, which is a name to worship one of the many gods of Babylon. Daniel means God is my judge, take that away. Yahweh is my judge, (laughs) take that out. But for the first time, Nebuchadnezzar writing in his own words, Daniel chapter four, writes this, look in verse eight. At last Daniel came in before me. He who was named, was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream. This is the first time, this is the first time that Daniel's name is used in two, three, and four. And here it is written in Nebuchadnezzar's own hand. Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel came in before me, he whose name was Belteshazzar. I think he gave him his name back. He said, you you don't need to be named after my false gods. You are named after the one true God. Isn't that great? Story of conversion. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar's in heaven? I think so, too. I heard one person say, "The three surprises we get to heaven are these: We'll be a surprise at the people who aren't there. We'll be surprised at the people who are there. And then for me, I'll be surprised that I'm there. The purpose of these chapters are to convince us that God is indeed king of kings and kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar was a tree that God had to cut down to size. In the world's eyes, Nebuchadnezzar was the man to be feared, the king of all kings. Nobody was more powerful. But in God's eyes, he's just another guy. Just another guy that God can reach down and snatch away his mind if he wants to, to get his attention. God is a God of every queen, every king, every authority, and he is God of you as well. Whether you wanna recognize that or not, he is your God. He is controlling your life and destiny. And there's a verse that says in Philippians 2 that every knee, one day, every tongue will confess that he is Lord and every knee will bow to the glory of God the Father. He is the God. It is our responsibility to acknowledge his power and his right over our lives. We're heading into a collision course with hell and judgment, but God is rich in mercy, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So I want to finish off by just asking you, do you know the road of repentance? Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I know this person in my life, and I wish that God would break through their pride. Or maybe you're thinking to yourself, I might be a little proud. And I want to know that I've gone down the road of repentance. I want to know that I have been changed by the mercy of Jesus Christ. So here's a checklist of repentance. Repentance means that there's a hinge point. There's an offer of repentance. Where this is where God grasps onto your heart and says, I'm here, are you listening? There's a moment of, of repentance. And he does this even with the most rebellious hearts. God does this. And the second step is there's a humbling. Like Nebuchadnezzar, this person, whoever God's trying to get attention, has to know their place. And so in Daniel, one, Daniel 2 and Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar does not recognize God, but our prayers that everybody gets to Daniel 4, where you're broken by God. And there's a humbling that takes place. I've heard it said, actually, Michael says this if you knew what God knew, you would do what God does every time. And that is the attitude that we have toward this God that we serve. Number three, there's a public confession. You can see that in Nebuchadnezzar, can you not? There's a public confession I'm wrong, you're right. I'm a sinner, you're holy. I'm unrighteous, you're righteous. I'm selfish, you're gracious. There's a complete recognition of who God is and how we have broken his heart, a public confession. And then there's a restitution. This is only because of God's grace. And this is what God does with Nebuchadnezzar. And and then it's what we do with one another. If you read in the New Testament, there's a story of Zacchaeus. He's a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Do you remember Zacchaeus? He climbed up in a sycamore tree with the Lord he wanted to see. And on that day, so anyway, there's a little song. Uh, Jesus comes walking down the road. Zacchaeus was hated in his village. He He was a tax collector for Rome. Nobody liked him. He was a Jew. He was a sellout. Jesus says, I'm coming to have lunch at your house today. Go have lunch. We're not told what happens at the conversation, but we know that after the conversation that everybody said in the village... Jesus went to eat at the house of the sinner. They called Zacchaeus the sinner. How would you like to be known as that? You know, in your village. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's the sinner. Jesus went to eat with the, at the house of the sinner. But then when Zacchaeus comes out, whatever conversation they had, Zacchaeus comes out of that and he says, I'm gonna give back three times to everybody what I've done wrong for them, to, and taken from them. Is that great? That's a heart that's been changed. Nebuchadnezzar has been changed. He writes the fourth chapter of Daniel. And for us, True repentance means that we've been changed, and there's proof that that occurs. And then the last thing is there's an enduring worship of God. It doesn't just happen a few days in a week. This is a continual devotion of worship to God. Final thought here is God always wins. <laughs> Isn't that great? God always wins. If you're on God's side, you're on the winning side. God always wins. That's great. Every kingdom from here on forward, if they've gone down the tubes of selfishness and and self uh, pride and all of those things, if they've just built themselves up into evil empires, they are all constantly in the Bible referred to as Babylon. Did you know that? Babylon will rise up, Babylon is this, Babylon is. And in the end times, in the book of Revelation, the final kingdom of the earth that God judges is referred to as Babylon. And God refers to that kingdom in the end and says, they will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, after God's judgment falls on the final Babylon. Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour, your judgment has come. God always wins. You will not be in the final Babylon if you belong to Jesus Christ. You're not a citizen of this world anymore. Sorry to tell you, uh, my Canadian citizenship, your American citizenship, doesn't matter when you're, when you're citizens of the kingdom of heaven because first and foremost, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We belong to a new kingdom, a kingdom that will never end. And when God calls us home, that's where we go to be. To absent from the body is present with him and someday he'll come back and he'll rescue us and we'll be with him forever. But the kingdom of this world will continue until God says seven years are done. It's up, judgment will fall, and it'll fall quickly. And on that day, everybody around will say, alas, alas, great Babylon has fallen. But we who belong to Jesus Christ, we will live forever in the kingdom of God. Is that not a great promise? I love it. I'm so sad we're at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's story, but next week is just as good, you're gonna love it. (laughs) Uh, But this is the end of Nebuchadnezzar, but the beginning of a brother in Christ. Let's pray. So Father, more than anything else, out of this story, I take the fact that you are so gracious to us and patient with us and long-suffering with our silliness and our stupidity. so many times the world demonstrates that they not just disregard you, but they have an abhorrent hate toward you but you're patient, always working in the background, always maneuvering things to change hearts and to draw minds to yourself. So Father, I pray that you would do this in our generation. So many times I watch the news and I think to myself, how long will you put up with this silliness, Lord? I can only imagine how you feel about it. And so I pray that we would be ambassadors of righteousness in an unrighteous world that we would be lights in a dark world, that we'd be salt in a tasteless world, that we would be able to give hope to a hopeless world and a peace that passes understanding in this world. I pray that you would use us as vessels of honor like you used Daniel. And I pray that we would have people maybe not as hard to break as Nebuchadnezzar, but people in our own lives that we constantly invest in, hoping and praying one day you'll break through and your grace will win them over. Until that day, Lord, may you use us however you want to as vessels of righteousness and honor and ambassadors for you as you fill up the kingdom of God. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.